Hello, all, and welcome to the Goddess Project podcast. Um, happy Easter to those of you who are celebrating this weekend and happy Passover to those of you who are celebrating this weekend. Um, I'm super excited to talk about caves today and kind of go a bit on separate rants uh, about caves. I was just thinking today about how I can make these stories make sense. I'm going to try and do it chronologically, but there's so many interconnections when it comes to caves and when it comes to the descent into caves, the worshiping in caves, the ascent from the caves, that it's difficult sometimes to make it linear. So I'm going to do my best to make it linear for you. Um, and if you're following on YouTube, you can kind of follow some of my notes. But if you're not, that's okay. As you know, I'll take you through each of the different time periods and perhaps some of the cave paintings and the ways in which rituals were performed in caves. Yes, I'm sorry. I'm just thinking of all the things that I'm going to talk about today. And uh, I'll also describe to you some of the more recent discoveries that we've had, which which are really exciting. One is um, from a Christian perspective or a Christian discovery. The other one is on the African continent uh, in what is modern day Botswana. So very, very excited for today. Um, very excited to share with you guys my passion for caves. I should say also uh, that caving has actually been one of my most favorite things to do. I don't know if that makes sense, but caving has been one of my most favorite things to do in the recent few years, and that is going into caves and spending some time in caves and then coming back to the light from caves. And so the experience has been actually so deep and moving. Moving is probably a better word. The experience has been so deep and so moving that um, I, I'm starting, I'm, I've wrote a bunch of material on it. And I'm hoping to continue writing some material on it, uh, perhaps for maybe another book about the influence of being in a cave and the feeling of being in a cave. And I'm sure some of you have already caved and you're like, yeah, you know, and in Ontario, in Northern Ontario, we do have some caves or whatever they uh, label as caving, but these, I wouldn't call these caves. I would call these in my experience in Ontario, anyways, I've been since some caves in Northern Ontario, and I would call them hollows in rocks, you know, uh, because that's sort of the definition of the caves in Ontario. The kind of caves that I'm talking about today, for those of you living in Ontario, are caves that take you deep into mountains. Caves that have numerous tunnels. Um, Caves that are so deeply hollowed that you almost enter a different realm. Okay. So there is, you know, and in my own home country, for example, when I was a kid, we used to go caving. I didn't really realize actually the significance of it when I was a kid, but I still love going caving with my parents. And I remember going into the caves, but walking into the tunnels 
uh, or through the tunnels, let's say. So you can walk from one part and end up in another part. And of course, there's a ton of caves that you could really get lost in. So, you know, you have to really be careful. And there are caves all over Europe or sort of built tunnels and built caves, um, not so much natural caves, that were used for people to secretly worship in, to escape in, all of these kinds of things. So there's just so much to talk about when we're talking about caves. I don't think that we talk about them as much in their significance. I think people go, oh, caves and bats, you know, that kind of thing. But I don't think that people even myself, really stop to think about how significant they are in our connection to the earth, in our connection to the divine. And that's that idea of descending into um, the underworld or descending down into. So when I went to Crete and I went to Greece, all the caves that I went to, you would have to climb up a mountain. Some of you that have seen my TikTok probably already seen some of that. You have to climb and climb and climb and climb. And then when you get to the top, you're like, yeah, I've reached the cave, right? Because you're in the mountain and then you descend, right? So the first thing that comes to mind, actually, as you descend, like when I went to the Zeus cave uh, in Crete, it took me forever to get up there. Okay. Forever. People were passing me by on the donkeys. And I was like, oh man, that is such a good idea. Right. So I climb up there. Okay. No problem. Then I get to the top. I'm very excited. And then I see this, all these stairs to go down into the cave. And my first thought is, holy shit, I got to climb all those stairs right back up when I'm done the cave. But again, it was another maybe 150, 200 steps to go down afterwards. Um, so there's this really fascinating ascent and descent, right? And I, I, I feel like I'm going to be saying that over and over today, but I just want you to think about that because we're physically ascending and descending and then we're spiritually ascending and descending into caves. Um, so that's really the, the exciting uh, part about caves. Okay, that being said, let's get started. So I'm going to go back in time a little bit to the Paleolithic or what um, paleontologists call the Upper Paleolithic, which is really just a fancy word for about 40, 50,000 years ago. And the consensus among scholars is that this is when Homo sapiens began burying their dead, which is a symbol that reflects or an action that reflects um, religious worship or spiritual worship, because burying your dead implies a kind of understanding of an afterlife. So there are, for example, in the animal kingdom, many animals like elephants, for example, who do uh, who have animal cemeteries or sort of dead cemetery, dead cemeteries, of course, this dead cemeteries. Um, but um, there are so there are some animals that practice, I say that hesitantly, a kind of sacred space around the dead. So that's not that unusual in the natural world. But when you're burying the dead in the ground, um, or in, in a cave, as we'll talk about, and then maybe doing some cave art, painting some cave art, or creating some um, design or pattern. What this tells scholars, in particular paleontologists, but also archaeologists, etc., all the ologists, um, what this tells us is that there is a a beginning of self-awareness, of self-reflection, and also of this idea of an afterlife or 
a type of honor of the organic body. And when we start to honor the organic body, we begin to think about those two separate things, the organic body and the spiritual self. Okay. So around 40,000 years ago, Homo sapiens began um, burying their dead. And they also began to cave, uh, to paint in caves. And one of, I think, the most popular and actually recently debated or recently re-researched um, caves is um, some of the caves in France, for example, where we have paintings of hands or bodies. So this, so the earliest paintings, according to what we've discovered so far, are almost like self impressions so for example the cave painting with the hands as you've seen now there's a discovery that these may have all been children's hands uh, it's unclear i don't know this I, I i can't go either way because i'm not sure i'm sure that those who are claiming that have studied the size of hands of paleolithic people so there's now this discussion that actually these hands that we thought were men's hands of course uh, early scholars that oh yeah men's hands then they thought oh women's hands because they're a little more dainty and now they're saying oh children's hands either way whoever's hands are in this these caves what's really magnificent is the fact that human beings started leaving their imprint in a very physical way and in a way that preserved um, their art for later generations. So although we first started discovering evidence of cave paintings in Europe, actually the earliest cave art was created in Australia and Southeast Asia. So originally what we discovered first was in Europe. So we discovered, uh, I'm going to mention a few places in, in Europe where there are caves that were first discovered, but they are dated later then then later discoveries in Australia and Southeast Asia. So I give you this range of 40,000 years ago. Again, you know, who knows exactly? It could be 50. Um, the article that I'm talk I want to talk about in uh, Botswana is now dating the ritual to 75,000 years ago. So many, many, many years ago. And, you know, I would like to say perhaps always, you know, since Homo sapiens sapiens became thinking, oh, that's a bad thing to say. It implies everyone else was not thinking, but became maybe self-reflective or artistic, or maybe they had more leisure time too, because it takes time to create these paintings. But since the beginning, you know, for a very long time, Homo sapiens sapiens had the urge to leave their marks, you know? And so that's really something about us, actually, to be frank more than the natural world. Um, but for a very long time, and I would argue maybe for our entire Homo sapiens sapien existence, we have been attempting some kind of artistic expression. The oldest cave art so far is from the island of Sulawesi uh, in Indonesia, which dates back to about 45,000 years ago, uh, which depicts a warty pig and some hand traces. Yeah. So as we're going to see, actually, some of the um, depictions in the caves are mostly, ironically, handprints, but also a lot of animal drawings, almost as though in the imagination of human beings, 
the things they wanted to draw about were the things they saw, right? So, you know, animals, of course, horses, bulls, calves, deer, etc. Um, very interesting. Could also be, to be fair, that these things are pretty easy to paint. Yeah. So even myself, who totally sucks at painting, ask my friends, they know. Um, I feel pretty confident being able to sketch out a horse, <laughs> you know? So perhaps it's not so much even in the um, the desire of what to paint, but in maybe the skill and ability of what to paint. Who knows, right? What early people's thought. I mean, it is our job to try and figure out what early people's thought and what they intended, but in all fairness, we have no idea. Okay? So some of the famous caves that have been explored. I'm going to give you three, okay? The first one is called the Chauvet Pont d'Arc Cave, and it's in southeast uh, France. And it contains some of the best preserved figurative cave paintings in the world, okay? And they are mostly of horses, donkeys. Uh, I'm looking at this painting right now, and it looks like it's four horses or four donkeys, um, so, or any other animal that may have been this familiar to, um, to these individuals. So again, what's really fascinating though, is the different coloring. So there's like a black charcoal, a little bit of yellow, a little bit of white. So the, there is this kind of mm, expressive attempt. So in a way it's what we would call realistic art. So it's trying to depict the actual thing in real life, but in a way, it's also very detailed art, which is very exciting. The other, um, the second cave is the cave of Altamira, which is actually in Spain, in Cambria, uh, Cantabria, Spain. And this cave is renowned for its art featuring charcoal drawings of local fauna and human hands. So again, there's this thing with hands, okay? So, and flora and fauna, which is really exciting. So we also know that human beings like to paint like leaves and flowers and sometimes trees and of course, animals and then handprints. So it seems like maybe this was like the trend back then, you know, hashtag handprints, cave paintings, uh, because it was, it seems to be something that everyone was doing and all over, in this case, Europe, all over Europe. But, you know, all over the world, people really like to stick their hands into something and then press them onto the stone or hold their hand onto the stone and then apply red ochre or dark charcoal to take the shape of their hands. Right. Very, very cool. The last cave is again in France. It's called Las Caus. And this is a forgive my French. I know I'm Canadian. I should speak some French, but that might be the wrong pronunciation. Oh, well, anyways, um, this is a network of caves, actually, which is near the village of Montenac. Uh, this is in southwest France. There are 600 paintings, 600 paintings that cover the interior walls and ceilings of the cave. So we're going to talk a little bit um, about the implications of what it is that is being painted. Now, in this case, of course, in these paintings, even in this last French town, um, are still large animals, contemporary fauna or flora, right? Um, but it, the fascinating thing about this cave set is that it looks like this was the effort of, of many generations. So that this is a continued work of art, a generational work of art, 
so it seems like people purposely went into these caves and continued the art of their ancestors, which is really fascinating, beautiful, and also fascinating and speaks to, again, human beings having leisure time. You know, we tend to think of, um, Paleolithic people as hunter gatherers, which is already problematic enough if we're talking about gender roles, because over the last, you know, 100, 200 years, people define hunter gatherer societies as men hunt and women gather, which is absolutely wrong. Um, everyone hunts and everyone gathers. So, but that's maybe a, a podcast for another time. So, we tend to think that these hunter gatherer societies were very focused on the hunt, very focused on survival, very focused on the day-to-day grind of living so-called non-luxurious lives. And one of the things that we associate with modernity is, of course, luxury, particularly luxury of time, particularly recreation luxury. And so art has often been defined for those, of course, who don't have a passion for it, Know, like a Picasso or uh, a Dante or et cetera. But art tends to be a leisure activity. And in order to have a leisure activity, you have to have time. So what's really fascinating about this, particularly this last cave, but all the caves, is that obviously human beings had leisure, and I say that in quotation time, leisure time or the luxury of some time to be able to spend, plan and spend drawing and painting. And so I want, this takes me back to what I always say about the ancients. And that is that they lived, we know very little about how the ancients lived. We tend to think that we live in the best and most progressive time period. If we look at time in a linear fashion, which time is not linear, but if we look at it in that way. And so what happens is we make these assumptions about for example, Paleolithic people in these cases or ancient people in other cases. And and our assumptions are, you know, they were ignorant. They had less luxuries. They had less. They knew less. They were less. And they were not. Yeah, so maybe I'll just cap that by saying they were not. Um, And hopefully through these podcasts that we're doing um, and hopefully you're enjoying, you're going to see why I keep saying that. Because the more you dig in the past, literally, and um, metaphorically, the more you learn that the ancients were quite wise and they lived quite well and quite long and knew some things that we either took forever to learn again, or we still have not discovered yet. So I just want you to keep that in mind because we are talking about caves. We're talking about people worshiping in caves. And I don't want you to think about people worshiping in caves because they didn't have temples or people worshiping in caves because they were primitive in some, in some way they were primitive, but caves are natural sources of energy and darkness and silence are natural sources of divine connection. I'm going to get poetic on you guys. Sorry. So to not take you through 5,000 stories, I would like to take you through some selective stories. I'm going to select some stories about caves. In the ancient world, of course, and my area of expertise with the ancient Greeks and Romans, the ancient Greeks often, always, often and always worshipped in caves. Even when they had temples, they would still continue to connect 
to the divine in caves in some form or another. So for example, towards the end of this podcast, I'm going to talk about um, one of the Artemis caves, the cave of the bear, which is in Crete. And the worship that took place there was at a time when there were already temples, beautiful temples, numerous temples erected for Artemis, as well as for Athena and Zeus and all the Greek pantheon. And yet... A lot of rituals and a lot of prayer and a lot of reflection and revelation still happened in caves. People still went into the caves to connect to the divine. So the ancient Greeks did that. If we look at, for example, if we go to um, Buddhism, in you know, Buddha would go into caves and meditate in caves. Again, a connection. There's a connection there, a spiritual connection in the act of descending into the darkness, in the act of meditating into the darkness, that is where revelations tend to happen. Uh, that actually makes, if we move forward in time to Islam, for example, Muhammad also went into caves and prayed in caves and the revelations happened in caves. So if you think about the amount of, and I say quotation, famous people, but famous spiritual people, who found their connection to the divine or their connection to resurrection in the case of Christians and Jesus, for example, in caves, it should not surprise us that caves are the singular, the singular place in which humans all over the world share the connection to the womb of the earth, to the womb of of the divine, whatever divine, whatever shape the divine takes for you, there is something magical about caves, supernatural about caves. Yeah. So I thought that I would uh, share with you a little bit the recent study that's been found, um, the recent sort of ancient cave that's been found that's been linked to early Christians. So in Jordan, archaeologists have discovered a cave underneath one of the world's oldest churches. And they say it might have been uh, the site of ancient Christian worship. But, you know, people are still a bit hesitant um, to um, associate that with Christianity. So the church of, sorry, the cave is found under St. George Church in the country of Jordan. And this is one of the oldest churches. So it wouldn't be shocking to us that there is a cave underneath this church where early Christians would have worshipped. In fact, I think it would be quite logical that early Christians first worshipped in the cave. And then as Christianity became more and more popular, they built a, a church on top of this cave. Okay. Um, so the curve, the cave, the cave was unearthed. Um, a few years, oh, actually many years ago now, almost like 10 years ago now. And, um, there is this, there's this, there was anyways, there was this debate on whether or not this was a cave that was used by pre-Christian traditions as well as Christians. So there is some evidence, uh, according to the early archeologists there that the underground cave was used as a church by 70 disciples of Jesus in the first century after Jesus's death, which would then make this the oldest Christian site of worship in the world. Now I went to Jordan and this cave was not on my list, but it will be on my list for the first time. Next time I went, uh, I go to Jordan. Um, when I went to Jordan, 
now, I think maybe six years ago, five years ago. Um, my purpose there was, of course, to go to Jarash, where there's an Artemis temple. But this cave seems to be acknowledged by some, certainly by Christians, as one of the oldest Christian sites of worship in the world. And by that, I mean that there's a belief that those who follow Jesus, li literally, um, were able to practice in, in that first century, were able to practice or worship in this cave. Um, the church, the, sorry, the cave is described as a circular worship area with stone seats separated from a living area that had a long tunnel leading to a source of water. So it seems like a perfect sort of underground home, underground um, settlement. A mosaic inscription on the floor of the later church of St. George above, which was built above, refers to the 70 beloved by God and the divine who founded the worship there. So why is this significant? Well, since it's Easter, I want us to think about the idea that when Jesus is taken down from the cross, he is placed in a cave, well, a tomb, but a tomb is a small cave. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, there's a stone placed in front of this tomb. And then uh, long story short, three days later, when they come to remove this uh, stone to bathe the body, the body is not there or to wrap the body. Sorry, the body is not there. And so this leads, of course, to the long tradition of not just Easter, but the long tradition of the resurrected God and the resurrection. So, and of course, this ties back to the descent into the afterlife and the ascent in the case of Christians into heaven, um, in the case of anyone else, really the ascent back to life or light, which again, it's very similar um, we use different words and different language for almost a very shared experience. So it doesn't surprise us that, let's say, these 70 followers of Jesus, particularly after Jesus was crucified and they were, they were hiding. And for a long time, early Christians were practicing in hiding because they were being persecuted. That they would perform these rituals and even live, in the case of this church, for example, in these caves as a source of protection, a source of connection, and uh, a source of ritual. Later on uh, in the Christian tradition, bodies, and not just the Christian tradition, but particularly in the Christian traditions, bodies were placed in underground built caves, which are referred to as catacombs. If you've ever been into a catacomb, um, for example, when I went to Malta, I went to the St. Paul catacombs. And and ironically, and almost amazingly, I was the only person in these catacombs because I went in 2020 and it was just the beginning of the pandemic. So there was no one in these catacombs. And so if you've ever watched uh, my reels on the catacombs of St. Paul, you could hear me walking by myself. It's a little creepy because they are almost like a labyrinth of tunnels. There are no more bodies in there, but there are these holes in the walls or these sort of family tombs, which are like built in open mouth kind of caves within the cave. Um, and you could see the holes where, where the bodies were. The bodies have been removed. So it was a little eerie 
um, you know, I'm not afraid of the afterlife or ghosts or anything like that. To be honest, I was afraid of men, you know, hiding out in these places waiting for some young archaeologist, dumb girl walking in by herself filming things. <laughs> um, but um, it's still a little eerie just because you can see, you can imagine by being in there and there, it is lighted, but again, the light is not very good. You can imagine by being in there, how close the bodies are. There are some places like when you make turns where you can't, you have to back up because you can't even turn your own body around. So they were packed in really tight, but also you can imagine that people came to visit their dead here. And so what, one of the feelings that I was getting when I was down there was, this feeling of many people coming into the earth to pay their respects or honor their dead or grieve their dead. So it would have been, I was going to say a fantastic experience, but it's not, it's, you know, it doesn't sound right. Uh, it would have been an experience, I think, to communally grieve the dead in the earth. It's incredible if you think about it, right? And when you're in there and you're kind of lost in the labyrinth, like sometimes when I'm video, thank God I was videotaping because then I can at least remember my feelings uh, more accurately. Although now I get that eerie feeling just now I'm getting goosebumps, but I can remember saying to myself, like, am I lost? Have I made the right turn? Um, how do I get back there? you know, and I think there was this sense at there were some moments in there where you almost sense like, okay, you need to pause and breathe and not only imagine what this might've been like, but then also reorient yourself in order to get out. Um, and so what a fascinating experience catacombs are. If you ever have a chance, they're all over Europe. Um, you know, they're famous in Paris, for example, but and in Italy, but if you ever have a chance to walk through catacombs, I know that some of them actually still have bodies in there, which is interesting. And I've heard that some of them have taken the bones of bodies and sort of decorated the walls and things like that, which is really creepy. But I haven't been to many catacombs, but the ones that I've been into, there is definitely a feeling, um, an unexplainable connection and of course, a bit cold too, right? So it feels a bit like how the Greeks imagined descending into the underworld because, yeah, it's also a little cold and wet. Like, so for example, when I was in the catacombs, I would back up into things or back up into the wall and be a bit wet or like, you know, things are dripping on you. So the whole physical experience is actually quite fascinating. Anyways, okay, I've ranted on a lot about catacombs, but it's just really fascinating. Actually, the more I think of it, the more I remember it. And the other, um, the other discovery that I wanted to discuss is the one that, that I mentioned earlier, which um, is the discovery of what they call the oldest ritual um, for the python discovered in a cave um, that they believe dates back to... Um, 70,000 years ago now, this discovery was made again about 10 years ago, nine years ago now. And it was in, it is in modern day Botswana, 
which shows that 70,000 years ago, so 30,000 years earlier than the oldest finds of Europe, there is this discovery on the African continent of a cave to the Python in which rituals were performed. Now, we are doing snakes as symbols in the next couple of weeks, I think. Yeah, because I think next week we're doing triangles and then I will do snakes or triangles and trees. Maybe we'll leave snakes for last because there's so much to say. Um, and so the worship of the python in caves is like the perfect storm because the snake worship is as old as time. Clearly, in this cave, it's as old as 70,000 years ago. And snakes play such a key role in the wisdom and knowledge lore of human beings and the fact that this worship happens in a cave, again, not surprising, but fascinating, right? Um, and the fact that it's so much older or earlier than we thought that that it was going, that we thought that people were already worshiping in caves. So remember how I was telling you 40,000 years ago in Europe, people were drawing cave paintings and drawing their hands. Well, it turns out that 70,000 years ago in Africa, in what is today modern day Botswana, people were actually creating these massive rituals for a religion, which is the religion um, of the Python. And in fact, this may be um, a discovery of mankind's oldest known ritual. And ironic that the ritual is for the Python. Um, Some of the artifacts that are found um, in this um, cave point to not just drawings, so there are numerous drawings, uh, rock paintings, but there are also small artifacts um, and ritual, like ritual ceremony or ceremonial artifacts like bowls, pots, et cetera, et cetera. Um, The ritual, of course, for the Python was held in this cave. The cave was very secluded. So it's, it, was, it was not surprised that it wasn't discovered for a long time because it was very secluded. And it had these two paintings on one side of the cave and a rock that had like larger indentations in it, sculptured into it. But most people didn't really pay attention to it for a long time until maybe around the 1990s when they started saying, maybe there's more to this. And then in around 2012, archaeologists entered the cave and then they, they realized that this mysterious rock that had these, these indentations in them actually resembled the head of a python. And so then they've decided to keep going into the cave, dig deeper into the cave. And then they found three or 400 indentations that could only have been man-made. And so what it looked then, it looked like the first rock was the head of the python. And as you enter into the cave, there are the skin of the python, if that makes sense. So it appears like snake skin, right? If you've ever seen snake skin. So the indentations made it look like a snake skin. So almost like you're walking into a cave along a python, right? Very, very, very fascinating, you know? And then, of course, archaeologists continued to... um date things. Uh, They found a bunch of sacrificed spearheads there. They say they found about 13,000 artifacts. So spearheads were a part of that. Um, They they believe they found a shaman's chamber, a secret chamber behind the Python stone where um, the the shaman might've lived or practiced or built their potions or got ready for the rituals, et cetera, et cetera. Um, And so some very 
fascinating information, I think, brought to us by uh, the tribes that were living at that time in this part of the African continent and worshipped this majestic creature, this magnificent creature, because if you've ever seen pythons, they're quite incredible. And not only does it, of course, give us information and history um, of the people of this, the ancestry of this area, but it gives us a connection again to how early peoples worshipped and how they worshipped in caves, what they thought were things worth painting, what they thought were things worth dedicating to the divine what the divine may have been connected to, all these kinds of questions are answered in caves. So now I would like to talk about the best part about caves, which is this concept of the womb. So we've gone over which caves, what are the drawings, what are the paintings, what are people connecting to, what are the different religions that experience maybe cave connection. (laughs) But I think the most important thing that is very rarely discussed, very rarely discussed, is the connection of the goddess, of the divine as female, of the cave as the womb. So when I went to Athens many, many, many years ago for the first time, they had a um, exhibit which we were not allowed to film, that had these fry pan artifacts. Okay, so I have an image of a fry pan artifact here and I have it up on my uh, Instagram as well if you wanted to see it. Uh, But this is only one fry pan artifact and this one appears to be copper or kind of looks gold. It's very bright. The ones that they had many, many years ago that I have not seen again, the last time uh, I was at the Athens um, museum at the museum in Athens is these ones, the ones that I saw then were, were black, but very similar to these, but black. So made of like black stone, let's say they look like a fry pan. So they have a, a round, like a circle. And then at the bottom of the circle, they have a little bit of a, or a balloon, a tail. They have a little bit of a tail. And I'm showing you this one, you know, I'm talking about this one because this is the only one that's available to see at the museum. And I haven't seen the others in a long time, but also um, sort of as a visual. The one that I'm showing you here has, um, the, it's, it's, it is that kind of fry pan look and then incised into it is these um, spiral formed waves okay and what looks like a boat among the spiral formed waves so it it could be viewed as an image of a boat in the water and then at the bottom where the balloon closes or has the tail or the fry pan has the handle there is the uh, pubic triangle we call the pubic triangle and this one actually is a great example because this is clearly a pubic triangle it has the triangle upside down with the little line and all the other ones that I saw before um, they also had the pubic triangle right at this um, conjecture here at the bottom of the circle 
But inside them, inside the balloon space or inside the circle or the pan space, they would have things like a home with stars or two people in the forest or just incised into the stone were all kinds of, there must have been, I don't know, 20, 30 of these fry pans. There was a whole room to this exhibit. And none of it had been recorded or studied, which is why we weren't allowed to take pictures of it. We're just allowed to look at it. But I want you to imagine that people had dozens of these fry pans and they just kind of incised into them whatever they cared about. Some of them had animals, like I said. Some of them had like the shape of homes with bodies. Some of them had stars. This one, for example, has a boat in water or fish or animals. And all of them had the same cubic triangle at the juncture where the sort of fry pan handle is or the balloon ends. And these date back to almost 5,000 years ago, 2800 to 2300 BCE, perhaps even earlier. So about 5,000 years ago, almost 6,000 years ago, human beings saw the womb of the, the, the female womb and the earth womb as the cosmic womb, okay? So let me explain that. Early peoples were really fascinated with the experience in the womb. What do we experience in the womb? And it's because in the womb, we are neither a full organic body independently on our own outside the womb, nor are we just a spirit body, let's say pre-entering the organic self. So we are, the womb is actually that place in between worlds. You know, sometimes you read fan fiction or you read fiction and they talk about fantasy fiction and they talk, they talk about this in between worlds. Or sometimes you watch Supernatural or whatever, and there's this in between world. And in fact, we do experience that in between world. It's a real thing and it's in the womb. Yeah. And so we don't think about it because we don't really think about being in the womb. And I don't know if anyone remembers being in the womb. I have heard of people that have been hypnotized or have hypnotized themselves to sort of experience their earliest memory. And some of their earliest memories are in the womb. I don't know any of myself. Maybe you know some. But that time in the womb, that nine months, we live in the in-between. We live in between the organic self and the spiritual self. We are neither people nor are we spirits. And I don't mean that like in the physical or religious sense of what is a person or the legal sense. What I mean is that we are not fully outside, like only in our own bodies as people. And we are not without bodies as spirit. You know, we are these living things that are in between. I'm just fascinated with the womb. I think that we don't think about the womb enough and having carried two children in my womb, I did reflect often on what they were hearing, what they were sensing. You know, we talk a lot about that um, today, but what was their experience, you know? And now you look at the kids and you sometimes say, oh, remember when I used to carry you in this body or remember how much time you spent in this body or you used to do this or that or react in this way. And we never really, of course, we don't remember being in the womb, right? So our closest experience, of course, is carrying another life um, in the womb. So it's really fascinating. Anyways, getting back to the ancients and the cosmic connection. The only way then, once you become a full-bodied human, so you're outside of your mother's body, 
to access that supernatural world, that in-between world for the ancients. And even today, for example, if you experience the beauty of caves, is to enter, to, to, uh, to descend into the cave. And in descending into the cave, you are almost returning to the womb, except this is the womb of the world, the womb of the earth, the womb of the divine. And so now as a full-bodied person, you are entering a realm that is within the organic natural world. And so this in many ways is what I believe is the reason that ancient humans and even humans today are fascinated with caves and saw the caves as the first place to worship and felt that deep connection when you're in there, in the silence, in the, in the, it's almost a little frightening, the darkness, right? Because when you're in the womb of your mother, it's still darkness. You're still in darkness, right? Uh, But you know, you're not conscious, or at least you don't remember being conscious. Well, when you enter a cave, and you're you, you go deeper into the darkness and deeper into the under sort of belly of the earth, you feel that spiritual connection, you feel that connection with the world, or with the world within. Yeah? So then it's not a surprise that ancient peoples entered the the womb of the earth, the caves of the earth to connect to the divine. It's probably then not a surprise also that this is where they buried their dead because the idea was that wherever your spirit came from to enter the womb of your mother, to enter the your body, let's say, that was being created in the womb of your mother, wherever that womb experience began, in order to return to the afterlife or the same cosmic place from which your spirit came, you returned into the cave. And so we can see why then they buried people in caves. Um, now, that being said, I'm, I'm sort of compiling or um, overlapping a great deal of other burial rites, you know, and other burial traditions. So please don't think that all the ancients, I say the ancients a lot because I'm grouping them together in this sort of massive global scale, but please don't think that all, you know, many people burned their dead, many people buried their dead in the, in the earth, although there's could still be that interesting connection of being burned into, buried into the earth. But anyway, but many people or many, at many times in history, groups of people buried their dead in caves and these tombs, which are sort of small caves or man-made caves. And so that's the connection I'm talking about, right? So I don't want you to think that everyone does the same burial rituals, many burial rituals for different traditions, but the ones in which they buried the dead back into caves or the catacombs, um, which of course, there's also a political, social, um, economic aspect of it because you just didn't have enough um, time or space to bury all these people in the ground. But you can see that very interesting connection, I hope, between coming into the womb, honoring the divine in the womb or the cave, and then being buried in the cave as well. There's this really fascinating um, concept. And we will return to these fry pans and the womb of the earth and the pubic triangle because the pubic triangle here on these fry pans reflects 
the womb of woman. That is the universe. The womb itself is a small universe. And the entrance and exit, mostly the exit, but you know, the entrance when you think about the caves is through the pubic triangle, which means that women were thought to carry the cosmic, the cosmos in their bodies. Yeah. It's fascinating, you know, if you try to wrap your mind around this idea that being in the womb and being pregnant and giving birth is not just sort of a natural occurrence that happens, which it is, but that there could be this spiritual aspect to it that perhaps we don't think about as much today, you know, and that is that the new, the new life comes into the body of the woman as the organic body is built, the new life or spirit grows within this dark, warm, caring space and maybe remains connected to the divine or to the other world from which it came. And then in order to come into this reality, it exits you know, through the pubic triangle or exits through the female body and becomes its own individual person. I mean, it's fascinating if you think about that. It's fascinating. Um, so it's not shocking to me that ancient peoples were very, very sensitive to spirituality, very, very sensitive to supernatural, the supernatural realm. And so they understood the beauty of caves. Yeah, they understood the, the connection of caves. Uh, I want to talk about two other caves. <laughs> we might be here for a bit. But anyway, I want to talk about two other descent experiences. My favorite one, of course, is the hypogeum in uh, Malta and in the YouTube video, but also uh, in my links in bio in IG, you're going to see my blog, my travel blog, which is imaynad.com. And if you want to read a detailed experience of the hypogeum, uh, please take the time to click the link and read for fun. Hopefully, you know, uh, my writing is not... Uh, <laughs> The travel blog is not not meant to be an academic learning, but more of a an experience learning. So I say that for those of you that might be like, oh, I don't know if I want to read something that maybe has too much uh, educational aspect to it. Although it is quite an education to enter the hypogeum. So the hypogeum, I don't know if you've ever heard of it, is in Malta. And it's so inconspicuous normally, actually, you can't even get a ticket to go in there. But again, because I traveled there during the pandemic, there was no one there. So amazing. Uh, usually they let five people in at a time. And I think they only let them maybe six times during the day. So you can imagine during peak travel times, you have to book this hypogeum a year in advance. So if you ever plan to go to Malta, you must, must, must go see the hypogeum. And please um, buy your tickets online in advance because it is impossible. Actually, when I went, I was, um, staying at this little Airbnb and it was suggested to me by the host. And he said, you know, go to the hypogeum. And I thought, ah, oh, there's no way I can get in there. And he's like, well, maybe now with COVID, you might get tickets, blah, blah, blah. And I was so lucky because I did get a ticket to get in there and I was still with four other people. So it was still quite, I mean, for a pandemic, and when I went, I almost got lost. I couldn't find it because, because the hypogeum is in the ground, you know, it's floors and floors in the ground. 
the top of it or the outside of it is really just a small building because Malta, of course, is packed very tightly with uh, modern living. And it was actually found by accident, the house that was built on top of the hypogeum, they wanted to build something in the basement or something to do with um, water. I can't remember. And so when they dug down, they found this massive, massive um, underground, almost like an underground city of worship. And then they kept building at first they thought, oh, maybe there's some caves under there, but no, it's more than caves. The rooms, the altars, the temple, even the burial rooms are sculpted into the ground. There are doorways that are sculpted into the ground. There are windows that are sculpted into the ground. There are front entrance to the altar. Um, so it is about three or floor, four floors deep into the ground. Now, when you go visit, I think you only make it uh, one or two floors. Don't quote me because I can't remember exactly. But um, And that's all that you're allowed to see. You're not allowed to touch anything. You're not allowed to go anywhere. You have to follow. Like they've built, um, uh, what do you call it? Like a pathway um, of steel that you have to follow. And you're with a guy. They don't let you in there by yourself because the place has, has been has, is so ancient and you know, water damage and heat damage and all this damage can do so much damage that this is actually why they only let five people at a time. Believe it or not, our breathing actually changes the environment in there. And it's pitch black with certain kinds of lights, like red lights, because again, lights and flashlights ruin everything. Anyways, it's a fascinating experience. It's it's at least six to 8,000 years old. And what's really fascinating about it, other than the size of it, the epic size of it, is that it was built over so many generations, so carefully, spectacularly. And there are paintings on the wall with red ochre. Red ochre obviously signifies blood, life, birth, rebirth, etc. There are spaces that were made for prayer spaces that are made for uh, altar sacrifice. And then there are spaces that are made for burial. So certainly people were buried here, but it seems that people may have also lived here. And certainly uh, priests and shamans definitely lived here. And it seems like people would enter with their dead, but also would enter to connect with their dead in this area. So the most fascinating aspect of it is the idea that almost like there are mediums here, like or uh, people who could see on the other side, that the priests and priestesses here connected the living with the dead. And this is also, I don't know if you're into archaeology, you might have seen um, an image of a voluptuous lady that sleeps on her one side, um, and she's kind of made of this sort of red rock. And I had been wanting to see her for a long time, for years, almost a decade, um, in fact, seen that are the pictures of her over and over again in in documentaries and in other films and in pictures i always actually thought that this artifact was quite large and when i went of course the artifact was is at the museum but was found in the hypogeum i expected her to be quite large and in fact she was so small the sculpture of this woman that's about 10,000 years old 8,000 years old whatever it is was so small that it could fit in the palm of your hand What's really fascinating about her and where she was found was that she was found in the burial sites, this figurine. 
and other figurines are found alongside there as well. And what archaeologists believe is that the people who buried or left their dead in the hypogeum and, and either worshipped here or practiced here believed or may have believed that death is asleep, a fallen asleep or waking up from sleep, which of course also connects to the Buddhist ideology that when you die, it's like waking up from a sleep. So you, you die as in your, like the Buddha did. And actually, ironically, Buddha also fell asleep on his side. So you die, this organic body dies, and you wake up on the other side. So you fall asleep in the death and you wake up on the other side. And this actually connects very much to what archaeologists believe about this statue representing for the people that um, were living in Malta many, many thousands of years ago. The amazing thing about these people that lived in Malta during that time is that it seems like they just picked up and left. And uh, they left their temples. They left this amazing uh, development into the ground. They left everything. And they moved on to Sicily and other parts of Europe. Uh, We don't know why they left. People say, oh, maybe there wasn't food or there was a famine or it was too dry or it was too wet. Who knows? Uh, but they left these amazing places and they never returned. And so again, there's this connection of descending into these places where people left their dead or worshiped their dead or connected with their dead. And then ascending, you know, back to the light. Yeah. So I wanted to move on then to sort of the connection between something like the hypogeum, the womb of the earth, you know, the red ochre designs. Actually, in the hypogeum on the ceilings, they have these red ochre designs. These They look like circles. And again, this idea that time is cyclical, life is cyclical, everything is cyclical. And the idea of like coming through the womb and exiting through the womb of the earth, right? So there's a lot of that sort of cyclical Uh, representation. The ancients understood that time is not linear, way better than we do. And the connection of the pubic triangle as the entrance and exit. Um, When we look at triangles, I'm going to talk about how red ochre triangles were often painted at the mouths of caves to represent entering the womb and exiting the womb. But we'll talk about that next week when we look at triangles. And of course, because I have to mention my boo, Artemis, uh, I thought that I would um, share with you, lastly, my experience of one of her caves. I've been through many of her caves, um, and I'm going to actually do maybe a little uh, video on my Instagram of this cave, uh, this cave experience, because it was just so fascinating. So this is the cave of the Artemis the Bear, and it's in Crete, and it, again, it takes forever to get there, forever. Um, the hike is long. The climb is long. <laughs> it's hot. It's beautiful because it's right near the water, actually, right near the sea. But it does take a lot to get there. The one aspect about this cave is that it's not so much a descent into the cave as it is um, a walk into the depth of the cave. So this is more of an an open mouth cave like we've talked about, but it has depth behind it. And one of the things of caving on your own (laughs) 
is that I went into the cave. Several caves actually are in this mountain. But anyway, I went into the cave and in the back of the ritual space, there are more caves beyond. But, you know, I am an adventurous spirit, but as adventurous as I am, you don't want to go into the depth of a cave on your own, uh, perhaps with a phone that loses connection uh, and then either be injured or be lost. Um, And so I really hope and I plan that one day I will return to this cave with a group of people, travelers who want a cave with me, and that we will be able to explore the cave a little more in depth, again, safely, (laughs) yeah, safely, uh, but a little more in depth. And what I really hope is that we're we're able to maybe light a candle, maybe do a little spiritual prayer, um, just something in honor of all of the rituals that have happened in this cave. So uh, you might not see the picture, but again, visit my Instagram. I am going to post a little video of this cave. What you could see at the center of this cave is almost like a above ground stone pool. So it's rectangular and it's about mm, four feet off the ground, right? So you could stand uh, maybe actually even taller. Um, And then you could stand and kind of look in just barely and you, it looks like a pool and this used to be filled with water and on the edge of the pool let's say is a stone formation which is a natural formation that looks like a bear it's white like a white stone formation like a limestone formation that looks like a bear climbing over the pool okay and so this is why it's the cave of the bear and of course artemis being connected to the bear um, it becomes the cave of Artemis the bear. So the idea, the story, the legend is that one day a bear, a white bear, um, was looking for a cave to hibernate in, to have her babies in. And she found this particular cave and she climbed into this pool, this section, this this rectangular stone section, um, and made it her home. And so what happens is every year in the ancient world, uh, women would come into this cave, children too, I mean, children, boys and girls would come into this cave, and there would be a ritual of initiation. So they would on the side of the bear, there's like these stone steps that have been carved in. So they would climb up into uh, the top of so the border of this pool, go into the pool and come out the other side as a form of initiation. And the initiation would be from childhood to it's a puberty, uh, sorry, a, a, a rite of passage of puberty. So it would go from child to adult. Uh, so for girls, of course, this would be at the time of menstruation. And for boys, this would be around 13, 14 of age when boys were thought to um, turn into men. And so people came and performed this ritual. There was music, there was dancing, there was candles. Um, there was offerings here. So people left things here. Um as part of the ritual and people would leave things in the pool or around the pool. Now, when you look inside the pool, um, there's really nothing there. And and I guess for good reason, but um, sometimes these festivals would take days. Sometimes it would take a whole week. Um, And so people would come here. There would be a procession of young children that would come here for their initiation ceremony. There would be food, like I said, music, And again, the idea, this multi-layered idea of 
having an initiation ceremony in a cave where the divine and the womb and the cosmos connect or interconnect. And when you stand here, I mean, this cave, I mean, I'm showing you a picture of it now and I'll show you pictures of it later, but it doesn't do it justice because iPhone, you know, I'm a noob with the filming thing. So I have my iPhone, but it doesn't, iPhone doesn't capture the size of this cave. You know, you could fit 200 people, maybe more in this cave around this basin. So you know, sometimes when I'm caving, I sit in a cave for a while and I meditate and I think about what would it have been like back then? The smells, the noise, the talking, the music, the food, um, the children running around, the water, the singing. What an incredible experience. What an incredible, of course, it is a resurrective experience. You know, by entering, for example, this pool and coming out the other side, it's almost like you leave behind the childhood aspect of yourself and you are reborn um, or transformed as the adult self. And so, again, a transformative experience, a descent and ascent, because you descend into the pool and ascend out of the pool. So, an incredible, what an incredible experience. I think, you know, I think we really have missed out on the rites of passage for children, particularly for young girls, um, but also for young boys. These moments in which the entire community comes together in this mystical space, spends days there, eats, talks, you know, celebrates, um, dedicates items and lives. Uh, and promises to the divine, it, it must have been such an incredible um, bonding experience, not just to the divine, but to each other, that I think is um, absolutely fascinating. And I think this is the purpose why, this is the reason why caves have really fascinated me. I think my experiences in caves have been revelatory, if that's a word. And I think that's why I'm so drawn to writing this experiences. Um, I hope that that's something that would be interesting, but I can't help but talk about it. I don't know if you can hear that <laughs> in my podcast today, but it's uh, it's been such an experience that I cannot wait to go caving again, that I am begging every person, every university, everybody to help fund this research, this travel to caves. Um, because there's just something there. And I feel like I've barely scratched the surface of that experience. And the reason why the ancients spend so much time in caves and we're so connected in that cosmic womb, you know? So I will, you know, bring you more as I come across more. Um, but um, I just wanted to, to share with you that experience and, and that fascination. And of course, if you want to know more about Artsmiths and her rituals, the fascinating rituals actually that were done um, in her honor and for the community. You can purchase my book. It's called She Who Hunts. Uh, it's just been published. I'm super excited and it's available at Amazon and iTunes and all the places you buy books and ebooks. Um, because I am fascinated with caves, but yeah, as you all know, I am fascinated with Artemis and I am on a next sort of research plan 
you know, the caves are, are a personal self-growth experience, but I'm also very fascinated with forests um, outside of Greco, the Greco-Roman world um, and caves, I guess, and the wilderness and her worship. And anyways, I could go on about that for another podcast. Um, but that's sort of my next research for her. And she always shows up everywhere I am. You know, like I, I want to go to this retreat in May in BC of all places. And I'm still considering it because, you know, cost and life. Um, and so it's a, it's a retreat in the wilderness, a spiritual retreat. There's a lot of sort of um, uh, wild deer, horse, mountain connection here. But I scrolled through, I was like, oh, this is a really interesting experience in the wilderness. And, you know, I'm doing Artemis in the wilderness. And in scrolling through, you know, one of the things that they said is this uh, retreat, this ritual that we're doing for the full moon in the wilderness will be in honor of Artemis Diana. And I thought to myself, holy shit, like that's a sign. Yeah. Uh, I just have to raise money <laughs> to get there. But uh, I thought, wow, you know, BC, like that's Canada, right? Uh, and and these women are putting together this full moon ritual, this practice in the wilderness and, you know, honoring sort of the the, the deer and the horse and the, the wild animals of BC, the bear um, and, and Artemis. What a crazy, you know, what a random... Um, serendipity, really. So it seems like she follows me as much as I follow her. And so it's a, it's a love relationship. So thank you all for joining me. Uh, that is it for me today. I hope that you've really, really enjoyed, um, this podcast on caves. I really, really enjoyed putting it together. I really enjoyed sharing it with you guys. I look forward to working, uh, to, to, um, working on the next podcast, which is triangles. And then I think I'll do trees and we'll save the snakes for last. Um, (laughs) and, um, so I hope that you really enjoyed, um, today's podcast. Please follow me everywhere. Instagram, uh, the goddess project, uh, where else, uh, on Facebook, on imena.com on YouTube, at The Goddess Project, everywhere. Uh, Follow me. Please give me your feedback, your questions, um, your impressions, um, anything that you feel is interesting, or maybe maybe you've experienced something or come across things that you think, hey, you know what, add these to your places to visit. That would be very exciting as well. So please feel free to contact me or DM me anytime. And I hope you have the greatest long weekend. Uh, whether you're celebrating Easter or Passover or just the long weekend. I hope you have the greatest long weekend and I will see you all next week. All right. Bye y'all. Have a great day.